Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, we're about three weeks into, into 2021, and I'm not sure about all of you, but I've, I've thought multiple times, wait, has this been three weeks or three months? Because it feels like a lot has been happening. So hope everyone is hanging in there and, and hopefully um, have received or are in the pipeline or are going to be able to um, receive the COVID vaccine, because it's just incredible that... Um, this vaccine was able to come through so quickly. We we're able to to get it, and then, you know, no matter how how rough and hard these days certainly might seem like they are, there's there's a light somewhere coming. Now today, our episode is part two in our trauma alert series. But first, a quick word from QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. Part one featured Brian Gilbert from Wesley Medical Center in Wichita, Kansas, focusing on the acute management of the critically ill trauma patient, kind of in the trauma bay from the moment they arrive and and actually even before they arrive. Um, So if you haven't listened yet, be sure at some point to go back and do so. I mean, we cover TAG or Rotem or, you know, if you want to be fancy, viscoelastography, um, the use of TXA. Um, PCCs are prothrombin complex concentrates, calcium administration, and more. Now, as we discussed in that episode, Brian and I said that, you know, acute management is just the beginning. There's so much more to cover. And this episode will do just that. We're going to focus on the ICU management of the critically ill trauma patient. And our special guest for Trauma Alert Part 2, ICU Management, is a recurring guest, friend of the pod, and another March Madness bracketologist, Melanie Smith Condeni. Now, Melanie Condeni is a critical care pharmacy specialist in the surgery, trauma, and burn ICU at the Medical University of South Carolina, or MUSC, in Charleston, South Carolina, and an adjunct assistant professor with the MUSC College of Pharmacy. She received her PharmD at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and completed a PGY-1 residency at UF Health in Jacksonville, Florida, and a PGY-2 in Critical Care Pharmacy at MUSC. And she was so kind to take some time out of her day to join us today. Melanie, how are you doing? Hey, Nick. I am doing great. I am so excited to be here today. Like you, I'm also excited. I finally got my COVID vaccine, so, you know, it's... 2021 is looking up for me. Oh, isn't that the truth? Yes. Second shot in. So I'm counting down for like, you know, that 10, 10 day, two week period after where I can feel less upset at that random person in the gas station who still feels the need to not wear a mask. Absolutely. Now I've, I've heard of pharmacists covering, you know, the sick you, the tick you, the stick you. But what's the abbreviation for your unit, the surgery, trauma, and burn ICU? Do, do you have a good one? Well, when we were trying to figure out a name, I was voting for the best ICU, which was which stood for 
burn and emergency emergency surgery and trauma. That one got outvoted. So we are the STBICU or surgery, trauma, and burn. We just added burns um, a little less than a year ago. So that's been a fun adventure for me, learning that new patient population. Whoever voted that down, I am against <laughs> The best ICU, what a perfect, and it's not, that it, it, that's not creating something out of nothing. That's a legit, that's what oh. those patients would be. Oh, we really are the best <laughs> ICU. Now th- this, this might be a, a uh, topic for debate, but when you're pronouncing it, are you, is it SICU or SICU? I would say SICU just because we had the we had the T before the burn came along so we said STICU well that's shots fired then melanie all right so we're <laughs> we're already starting off cuz i'm a sick you like a Mickey sick you that's that's the way it is but hey you know what to each their own we're here today and we're talking about trauma so there's at least one thing we can agree about i totally agree with that now i i want to kind of i think a good way of starting our discussion might be with one of the more challenging problems to kind of safely and effectively treat. And that is pain, agitation, and delirium in the critically ill trauma patient. So why is treating PAD in this specific patient population so challenging? Um, I think this is a great question and a great place to start. This is uh, one of the things that we deal with in every ICU but the trauma patient is unique in that it's sometimes harder to distinguish between pain, agitation, and delirium that these patients have. Um, for one, many trauma patients are at high risk for substance abuse, psychological disorders, things like that. So some of the things we have to try and figure out, is this a baseline psych disorder? Is this um, just a patient who has abused substances? before coming into our ICU, so their pain is harder to treat? Or is it a patient that's just been in our ICU um, for a long time and has developed delirium? So we kind of have to delineate between those three, and there can be a lot of coexisting factors that may make it harder. I really like that you identified there, just quickly, that that it can be related to both their, their management and their presentation or diagnosis. So it's not necessarily exclusively that it's just because they were a trauma patient, but it's also because they're getting all these medicines so long that sometimes they develop delirium and it can be related to their management. So it's kind of, it it can be a a double-edged sword there. Right. So some of the things that we kind of try to do to delineate between all three of those, um, we're very diligent about looking for substance abuse history, so getting urine drug screens on presentation, looking patients up in our prescription monitoring program um, to try and find out if they're on any chronic drugs, um, doing a really good job about getting medication histories and assessing for baseline psych diagnoses or medications that they may need to be restarted, like their psych meds, their chronic opioids, benzos, things like that. Um, and then making sure that we are using validated scales to assess um, whether a patient has pain or agitation or delirium. I think that this is one of my big jobs in the ICU is when I come in and we're trying to delineate all of that, making sure that our nurses and our physicians are all aware of the scales that we should be using and making sure that um, they know how to use them. You know, recently I had a patient, we were 
discussing delirium and discussing the CAM ICU um, scale, which assesses for delirium. And we got to the part where we were talking about Save a Heart, which is uh, a test that you do with a patient to decide if they have delirium or not. And then this nurse who had been in our ICU for about a year had never heard of that before. So that kind of stood out to me as, (laughs) oh, we probably need to do some re-education on the unit. Um, So I think that's one one thing that pharmacists can do um, and really help out with a lot is nursing education, physician education, and making sure we're doing our best to help delineate all of those um, issues with pain, agitation, and delirium. Yet yeah, knowing knowing the the scale is just half the battle. The the other half is, of course, knowing how to um, effectively utilize and, and assess um, what the what the patient score on on those specific scales. <laughs> Absolutely. So working in a, you know, specifically, you know, surgery trauma and now burn ICU, I'm thinking that you and, and your colleagues in similar units ha- have had to and routinely do use more kind of adjunctive agents to help meet our treatment goals. So what are, and, and more generally speaking, obviously there'll be patient-specific medications that you need to do in some circumstances, but what medications can we use to either transition off of IV kind of continuous infusions or in conjunction with these IV infusions just to help meet your treatment goals? Sure. Um, I think COVID has brought to light a lot of issues with the lack of sedation medications or shortages that we're seeing, um, lack of IV opioids, things like that. So a lot of people have gotten more creative about using multimodal agents. But the trauma world, this is old news. You know, we've used multimodal agents for years, um, especially in, you know, high-risk patient populations that are on lots of opioids. So some of my favorite things, just about everyone in my ICU gets scheduled Tylenol unless there's some sort of acute liver dysfunction. Um, We use a lot of NSAIDs as well, um, depending on renal function and other comorbidities. Almost every patient will get NSAID scheduled. Um, we use skeletal muscle relaxants in quite a few patients. Um, one patient population that really benefits from that are our traumatic rib fractures. Um, and that's just because when you have rib fractures, especially if there's multiple of them, you um, can get damage to your intercostal muscles, which will create both nerve damage and um, intercostal muscle spasm which makes it really painful for patients to take a deep breath, thus leading to them getting a lot of atelectasis because they're not taking deep breaths and um, leading to things like needing to be intubated or developing pneumonias, things like that. So we have um, studied and found that skeletal muscle relaxants tend to help with that quite a bit. Um, Along those lines, also using gabapentin or other gabapentinoids to help with that nerve damage that you may see uh, in those patients. And then there are also some kind of newer, um, newer agents that people are started that are catching on a lot more. Um, ketamine, I know, is one we talked about a lot during our March Madness episode, and I'm a huge fan of using ketamine mm-hmm. um, with these patients. So that's kind of another agent. And then lidocaine is probably the newest one that I have become familiar with, and we have just started using a little bit in our ICU. 
Um, it's a little more controversial controversial than ketamine, but I have seen some success with that as well. Some of the um, guideline recommended agents that I wanted to specifically point out, you know, the PADIS guidelines came out in 2018, and they definitely highlighted using acetaminophen, NSAIDs, gabapentin, and ketamine. So those are all um, based on recommendations from studies that have shown their benefit for kind of all treatment of pain, but especially helpful in your trauma patients. And then the Eastern Association for Surgery and Trauma, they have a guideline specifically for rib fractures. And again, they point out using um, all of those multimodals, but also point out using regional um, nerve blocks or epidurals, so using your anesthesia colleagues to um, help do things that help prevent um, overuse of opioids. So we frequently consult what we call the Regional Anesthesia and Pain Service or RAP service um, to come do either serratus nerve blocks for our rib fractures or do um, full epidurals to help decrease the pain and decrease the need for opioids in those patients. Well, I think it's official. I the the naming committee at MUSC is just incredible. the The raps team is just, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's um, one of my favorites too. <laughs> so you you mentioned, and I like that you you pointed out and you emphasized that this is like when you're talking about acetaminophen and NSAIDs, you mentioned scheduled. So, yeah, ex- explain to us why. Why do you why do you feel strongly that it should be scheduled? Because I'm guessing that a lot of order sets and a lot of these patients, a lot of them probably have PRN, Tylenol, and, and things available. So what? Why do you emphasize and what's so important with making sure that that medications like Tylenol, for example, are scheduled? I think a lot. I think that um, a lot of that comes from multiple reasons. For one, uh, we have a lot of patients that can't tell us that they're in pain or are very stoic about their pain control. So like I was mentioning, you have these rib fracture patients and we'll get little old ladies who will tell us their pain is a two. And by our scale, that means they shouldn't need any pain medication. But then you give them an incentive barometer and they can't pull more than 500 because they're actually in pain. Um, So using scheduled pain medications, especially your non-opioids, so your acetaminophen NSAIDs, um, skeletal muscle relaxants, gabapentin, things like that help get ahead of the pain um, and help make sure that all patients are getting some sort of baseline pain control. And then if, you know, we're not achieving our pain control goals with those medications, we'll add on an as-needed opioid um, to help kind of supplement any pain, any breakthrough pain. Um, so that's one of the bigger reasons is, you know, making sure that patients are getting some sort of baseline pain control um, and that even even your patients who may not or cannot tell you that they're in pain um, are getting coverage with a drug other than an opioid. Yeah, making sure to, to schedule those non-opioids where the the, the side effects and, and some of those downstream effects are, are much less and, and leave the, the opioids for kind of the, the acute pain that these patients are likely receiving. I, I love that you, that you brought up the example of the tough old ladies because you're right, a, a, a pain level of two 
for like an 82 year old lady who's a grandma, maybe a great grandma at this point corresponds to like a 15 for like a 38 year old guy. Like the scales are exactly inverse. Like the, the grandma's had one dose of any opioids and like, you know, the other one's needing 10 overnight and things. It's unbelievable. That is one point that I always um, make to my pharmacy students and pharmacy residents. You know, we're running the list in the morning and they're telling me about patients and say, oh, you know, this 30-year-old male, he's in a, a, he's got a pain score of 10. We need to schedule this and go up on opioids, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll walk by the room and he's positive cell phone sign, yeah. you know, texting, <laughs> yeah. no tears, fine, you know, doing totally fine. And, I, and I'll take my pharmacy seat and a resident down there and say, does that look like a 10 to you, worst pain of your life? Um, so that just speaks to the need to actually lay eyes on all of your patients. Um, but yes, you will see the little old ladies who won't tell you they're in pain. And then young males are always in pain. And it, that's, that seems to always be the case. <laughs> yeah, the, the old lady who has six rib fractures and a, and a chest tube has no pain, right? That, that kind of example. <laughs> um, so are there any... Because a lot of times, you know, you're mentioning a lot of these kind of multimodal agents and it can seem like if you've never rounded on a trauma unit or, or really been a, uh, helped care for a, a trauma patient whose pain or agitation can be hard to manage, it can seem like they're on a lot of medicines. So, but, they, you know, they're all working in tandem and doing right things. But are there any are there any agents as we're going down and really trying to do anything we can to help meet our goals or bring down IV drip rates, are there any agents that we want to try to avoid where the risks with giving these agents might outweigh any type of benefits, you know, short term in terms of, of what we're trying to do? Sure. There are kind of a few big no-nos that if you've ever rounded in my unit, you know, these are things that my head's going to explode if I see them on, you know, the patient's mar when I go in to work up patients. And um, a lot of that's evidence-based. A lot of that is just practice-based and things that I have seen in my um, years in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those things being benzodiazepines. Um, and unless benzos are a home medication or you're using it for a specific indication like alcohol withdrawal, um, we try to avoid those just because of the high risk of delirium that you have. Um, and like I mentioned before, a lot of trauma patients are already at high risk for delirium, especially if they have um, brain injuries, other things like that, that increase that risk. So we definitely try to avoid benzos and use uh, non-benzodiazepine um, forms of sedation like propofol or Presidex. Um, the next one that I absolutely abhor are patches. So... Um, Lidocaine patches, fentanyl patches, things like that. Um, it's interesting when people want to use these in the ICU um, that they don't realize all of those patches were, when they were validated and FDA approved, they're tested on, you know, normal weight, non-critically ill patients who don't have fevers. Um, so when you go and you put a, a patch on a critically ill patient who has changes in their volume of distribution, who's frequently febrile, you have no idea kind of what rate of drug those patients are actually getting from a patch. So that's probably my second biggest one um, to avoid in the ICU. And then the last one is, um, I would say, probably my biggest pet peeve and something that I get on a soapbox about 
all the time, and that is using continuous infusion opioids inappropriately. There are some patients that definitely need a continuous infusion, and we, we discuss that on rounds, you know, if the patient's not achieving adequate pain control with the multimodals that we're using plus PRN opioids, then it may be appropriate to go to a continuous infusion. But one thing I always have to tell my residents is just because a patient is intubated does not mean that they need a fentanyl drip. Um, and one of the reasons that I'm so kind of anti-fentanyl um, drips is just because of the kinetics of fentanyl. So um, the half-life of fentanyl changes depending on how you use it. So if you're using IV fentanyl, PRN, um, it has a relatively short half-life. And it's great when it's used that way because it has a quick onset. It's very lipophilic, so um, it has quick effects, um, and it wears off relatively quickly. But when you take that PRN and you put it into a drip and you put them on a continuous infusion fentanyl, the kinetics change to where it has what we call a third compartment model, and it develops this context-sensitive half-life. So like I said, fentanyl is very lipophilic. It um, distributes into the adipose tissue, and the longer you're on it, the longer your half-life becomes. So if a patient gets you know, intubated, put it on a fentanyl drip, we leave it on two or three days. We never try to wean it off, and they just stay on that continuous rate of fentanyl for a long time. That is going to dramatically, even exponentially, increase the time that it takes the fentanyl to wear off. So we'll turn the drip off, and a day later, they're still not waking up, and everyone's wondering why. Well, it's because you still have fentanyl leaching out of that adipose tissue and being becoming active drug um, that the patient is still continuously receiving. So one of the kind of fun games that I like to play, and this happens almost every day in my ICU if we have a patient on a fentanyl drip, um, is the, you know, okay, that rate, that fentanyl is on a, at a rate of 200 mics an hour. And we don't use weight-based, we just use a flat rate. So 200 mics an hour of fentanyl times 24 hours, and I'll let my residents guess, you know, how much oxycodone is that? Because they can think in terms of oxycodone. They know exactly how potent oxy is. They're used to prescribing that. Mm -hmm. um, they're not as familiar with prescribing fentanyl drips. So then we'll play this game and I'll get guesses of, oh, it's 100 of oxy a day. <laughs> um, when really, if they're at 200 mics an hour for 24 hours, that's almost 1,000 milligrams of oxy yep. a day. And so they just, that blows their mind. I get like crazy looks. I'm like, yeah, you, you just don't realize how much that is. And most, you know, opioid naive patients are not going to need that much oxycodone, so they certainly <laughs> don't need that much fentanyl. Um, and that's kind of one of my favorite things to to teach um, surgery residents on rounds. I love that. Do you do you play prices right rules when you do that? We have to clarify for the record. <laughs> Over or under? <laughs> they're they're usually nowhere close, so we're not. There's no prizes being given out. <laughs> So based on the, the, the medicines or, or treatment regimens that, that you do not like to see on some of your patients, I'm guessing if you're gone for a few days, I'm guessing you come back lidocaine patches, continuous infusion opioids. I'm, I'm guessing that those, those can come back in a pretty big way. Um, a lot of times if you're, if you're not there to, uh, be, pol be policing the orders. 
Right. Monday mornings can be kind of rough for the surgery <laughs> residents. <laughs> and, you know, I do, I do spend a lot of time teaching them. So it's, you know, they rotate on a monthly basis. So by the end of the month, they're all trained up and everything looks great. Um, but the first of the month, it can be rough until I get the new residents, you know, on par with what we want them to be doing for management of all the, the pain, agitation, and delirium. So it kind of switching gears here, you know, in all ICU patients, VTE prophylaxis is an important component of their care. You know, almost everyone has heard or has, you know, has taught uh, fast hugs BID, for example. Now, right. this is emphasized even more in our trauma patients. Um, you know, literally, I've, I've been in a in a surgery like conference room and you have printed out in big, bold letters Lovenox 30 BID, like written on the wall. Oh, she, well, um, so I, I may have just given the answer, but I, <laughs> the ultimately you just see that VTE prophylaxis is just emphasized so much. So this is one of those where the teacher gave, gave the answer to everybody beforehand. But so what is, what is our evidence-based VTE prophylaxis regimen? And then I think the more important thing that we'll be able to have some fun with is, you know, why, why does this regimen differ from our, you know, say our classic medical ICU patient with septic shock who, you know, most of us are familiar with what that regimen would be. Why is it, why is it different in this, in our trauma patients? Right. Well, trauma patients, if you talk about risk for VTE um, and you go back to basic physiology and talk about Virchow's triad, um, trauma patients basically check all of those boxes. So they have stasis because they're not able to get out of bed for the most part from their um, damage, their, their trauma. Um, they have epithelial damage, bleeding, and then they usually have coagulopathy as well. So they're um, just known at baseline to be at a higher risk for VTE. So what we normally use that you gave away was our Lovenox <laughs> or um, Anoxaparin 30 BID is the standard um, trauma dosing compared to um, in medical patients, unfractionated heparin is probably used most commonly or a lower dosing of the Anoxaparin. But what's very interesting when you kind of dig back into the why behind that dose and why we do that um, is that the data from, from all of the years of looking at VTE prophylaxis in trauma patients um, actually doesn't add up necessarily to that 30 BID um, being better than the standard dose of heparin. So just a little history lesson on where that dose came from oh, um, was way back in 1996. So, you know, 25 years ago now, there was a study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they compared using 30 BID of Lovenox to 5,000 units of sub-Q heparin BID. And if you're familiar with the dosing of heparin, most of the time we use sub-Q heparin three times a day. Mm -hmm. So it's very controversial that they studied it against what was probably a suboptimal dose of heparin. Um, and they did find that that 30 BID was better than the 5,000 BID at preventing um, venous thromboembolism in trauma patients. Um, after that, there were several other studies. They did a Cochrane review that, again, showed that low, molec low molecular weight heparin, your Lovenox um, or Noxaparin, 
appeared to reduce the risk of DVT compared to um, unfractionated heparin with no increased risk for bleeding. But once again, they didn't stratify that by dose of heparin. Um, and then one of the larger studies was a uh, trauma quality improvement program database study that came out um, really just a few years ago in 2017. And that was a huge study. So because it was a um, database study, they included over 200 centers, over 153,000 trauma patients. And what they found was that low molecular weight heparin, again, had a lower rate of PE, um, no increased bleeding. But once again, they did not specify the dose. So then the most um, recent study that actually looked at dosing was a study that uh, looked at 400 trauma patients. Again, they looked at the 30 BID Lovenox, but they actually compared it to the optimal dose of heparin, if you're going to use heparin, would be 5,000 TID. Um, they found the, that heparin and Lovenox, or heparin was non-inferior to the Lovenox, but the only problem with this trial is they underestimated their incidence of VTE um, between the groups, so they weren't really powered to find a difference. Um, so we probably had a, some statistical error there. So you know, all these years, for 25 years, we've been trying, we've been using Lovenox BID, but actually don't have a lot of head-to-head head evidence that shows that it's really any better than heparin. Although, you know, that is still standard of care, and there is a, there are a lot of advantages of using Lovenox compared to the heparin. Um, once again, the dosing. So we use Lovenox twice a day. Um, versus PID dosing for heparin, so the patient gets to be stuck one time less a day, which for me, as a if I were a patient, that would be something I would care about. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we also have, with your anoxaparin or Lovenox, less interference with platelets, so there's a potential there for having less bleeding, um, and then a lower incidence of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So there are some advantages, and, you know, even if we don't have great head-to-head -head evidence, I think there's enough out there to support um, using an oxaparin, especially now that it is um, generic and we don't have to worry about cost as much compared to, to heparin. Um, that's definitely going to be our go-to. This is another example of the more you know, the less you know, because right. <laughs> it, with, we're not even done with the episode. And I would say the thing that I, I felt like I, I've, I knew the most with trauma going into all of this was our VT prophylaxis things. And, and you just, you, you kind of shattered our, our glass ceiling there, but it just shows that <laughs> the, that it's important when you, to, to, look into the studies yourself and, and, and to identify some of those things, like looking at how, um, you know, a trial being underpowered, um, can create, um, some issues with interpretation of their results and not stratifying doses. So we're comparing a ramped up regimen to a regimen that we would argue is below our standard of care. So how do we interpret those things? So kind of uh, good that you highlighted those things and, and also showing us to uh, be sure to read more than the abstracts on these things. For sure. I think pharmacists are probably a lot more type A um, and really dig <laughs> into literature a lot more. So we are there to kind of destroy some of those dogmatic practices that, that we see um, 
in the ICU, but definitely to at least bring to light some of the failures of literature that we um, have out there supporting some of the practices that we have. So despite kind of some of the, the things you've highlighted there, do it, do the guidelines recommend, you know, 30 milligrams BID as our dosing or, you know, what's our, it sounds like we agree that's low molecular weight heparin BID, but do, what about our dose? So there's some actual brand new um, guidelines that came out in 2020 from the Western Trauma Association. Um, the 30 BID has been our historical dose now for over 20 years. Um, but the new WTA guidelines actually recommend 40 BID for patients that are of normal weight and um, of normal renal function. Now, there are some caveats to that, and we can kind of talk about alternative dosing strategies um, based on weight because that is something that um, is going to change a lot of how we do things. Because not every patient weighs 70 kilograms, um, which is the, you know, most common patient weight that we learn and how most drugs are dosed, but um, there's a lot of things that change when you have patients who either have obesity or are underweight. So some of those um, dosing strategies that we talked about for obesity, there's a couple different ways you can go about this. So 0.5 milligrams per kilogram is kind of a baseline um, if you have obesity. The um, Western Trauma Association guidelines actually kind of lay it out a little bit more specifically where you have 30 milligrams BID for patients who are in a range of 50 to 60 kilos and then the 40 milligrams BID for patients who are 61 to 99 kilograms and 50 milligrams BID for patients that weigh more than 100 kilograms. So that's kind of the rule of thumb that I use when I'm dosing um, for obesity. And then when you have patients who are underweight, the you could either use the 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. My kind of rule of thumb is if they are less than 50 kilograms, I just drop them from that 30 BID down to 40 milligrams daily. Um, and that seems to work out without any issues with increased risk for VTE or increased bleeding. So is there any utility in these patients for routine anti-10A level monitoring? And, I, and I'm asking because, you know, we're giving a higher dose, which theoretically would increase our bleeding risk. And then you're also telling us that that are higher risk for VTE events. So in theory, that would make sure that we're, you know, A, preventing overshooting our target, but B, also making sure we're not undershooting. What What is, you know, maybe the, the literature or your, um, you know, uh, practice history kind of tell us in terms of monitoring? So routinely um, in the past, there had not been recommendations for routine anti-10A levels um, just in, you know, your normal doses. Um, but those Western Trauma Association guidelines did actually come out and recommend routine monitoring um, in their most recent guideline, um, especially, they say, you know, when you're using the higher Lovenox doses. And that was based on a study that um, had come out in 2019 that was showing that routine monitoring may actually improve outcomes by decreasing um, BTEs. 
Um, the problem with that is you have to kind of weigh the risk versus benefit and the cost benefit analysis of doing routine um, anti-10A levels. There have been a few small observational studies. There was one that came out in JAMA, um, one that came out in the International Journal of Surgery in the past couple of years that have found a very small um, decrease in your rate of venous thromboembolism if you're using anti-10A adjusted doses. But when you think about the logistics of actually doing that, so you have to have people that understand, you know, the kinetics of Lovenox or anoxaparin, understand when you should be checking the levels, and then understand how to interpret those levels. Most of the time that falls to pharmacists. So if we were, you know, routinely checking anti-10A levels on every patient in the STB ICU, um, we're talking 20 of those a day. Um, so that would be very time intensive from a pharmacy perspective. So I think the um, ideal way to try and figure out who should get those levels or who would benefit most from those levels would be to think about, you know, the patients that are at higher risk for um, VTE. So patients who are overweight, patients who are underweight and may not be getting um, an appropriate dose of the low, low molecular weight heparin. So you really kind of have to risk stratify who's going to be, you know, the biggest group that could benefit from adjusting their dose um, or maybe who's at high, the highest bleeding risk and could be at a potential benefit of preventing that or decreasing that bleeding risk by making sure we're not on too much of the anoxaparin. So that's kind of my personal preference is I don't routinely do it on every patient, but if I have someone who is maybe obese on a higher dose, um, or a patient that's at a very high bleed risk that I want to be super careful about not giving them too much, those are the patients that I'm going to pick out to try and um, use anti-tenate monitoring on. I think you did a good job of, of um, hiding to all the listeners of how polarizing a, a question this can be with a lot of pharmacists specifically about their thoughts on using anti-10A level monitoring. I feel like it's a, you're, most people are, are, um, less in the middle. Like it kind of sounded like, like, I feel like I agree with, with what your kind of stance is, but I feel like a lot of times people feel strongly one way or another about using it or not, um, based on more of the theoretical kind of benefits or risks like you had talked about. Right. I know when I was in residency training, I got an anti-10A level on a medicine patient who I think weighed almost 200 kilograms and we were trying to decide on the dose and my preceptor who was also my RPD about killed me for doing that. He's like, you don't teach my team to do that. <laughs> um, but in the, in the trauma patient population, when you do have a much higher incidence of VTE, um, I think you can be a little more in the middle and a little more selective when using that test to try and make sure that you're doing the right thing for the patient. <laughs> Now, I love VT prophylaxis. I feel like I could, I specifically could talk about it all day, but I feel like closing it out in terms of our trauma patients, um, I feel like kind of the last, I, th I think we'd say it's probably a two-part question is, you know, when do we start it? And then at what point do we hold our VTE prophylaxis? Right. So initiation is important. And um, there's a lot of new, newer studies coming out looking at timing to initiation. Um, that 1996 study that I talked about 
they um, initiated within 36 hours. Um, but there, like I said, there's a lot of new literature coming out. There was a new paper that was just published this week, this past week in the um, Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. And it was um, published by a pharmacist primary author, which I thought was awesome. Um, and that. what they found was looking at, they were looking at timing to initiation and they stratified by whether they were within 24 hours, 48 hours, or 72 hours. And they found that for patients that had um, BTE prophylaxis started after 24 hours, their odds ratio was 1.26. So you had an increased incidence of BTE um, based on that longer time to initiation. And then if you waited greater than 48 hours, that odds ratio went up to 2.35. So you're almost doubling your risk for every 24 hours that you wait to initiate um, prophylaxis which there have been a lot of studies that have kind of come out saying, you know, the earlier you can get them on, the better. So what you really have to do when you're thinking about starting prophylaxis is kind of weigh that bleeding risk versus their risk of VTE. So we know, you know, all of these trauma patients that are, a high, are at a higher risk of VTE. So that kind of leads us to really focus on, so what is the risk of bleeding if we start? And that we kind of break down into which organ system is injured um, so the first one to think about in the big chunk of our trauma patients are traumatic brain injury patients. Um, what we have found is that trauma centers that start VTE prophylaxis within 24 hours have been shown to have significantly lower VTE rates with no difference in your um, need for late neurosurgical intervention. So essentially saying no increased risk of hematoma expansion and the need to intervene on that. Um, so what our goal is um, at MUSC is as soon as that patient has a stable repeat head CT, so they come in and they get one initially, shows a, t you know, shows a bleed um, on their TBI, and then we always get a six-hour repeat scan. So if, that, if at six hours that CT scan shows no hematoma expansion and they are stable, we're not planning on going to the OR for anything, we'll go ahead and start uh, VTE prophylaxis right then. So we get them within that 24-hour window. Your kind of second group um, that you look at are your solid organ injuries because those, again, you know, um, spleen, liver, kidney lack, depending on the grade, uh, we're going to be watching those very closely for a need to go um, to the OR for repair. So for those, we usually do within 24 hours um, with the caveats being as long as they don't have an acute hemoglobin drop um, in that first tw 12 hours or as long as they're not, you know, needing continuous ongoing transfusion, we'll go ahead and start within that 24 hours and then just watch their CBC every six hours looking for hemoglobin drop. Um, there have been studies that kind of support both of those practices, so that's what we really try to do. But then you have, you know, some patients that you're kind of um, weighing risk versus benefit. I know that Brian talked about using TEG and Rotem in the ED to assess um, transfusion needs and um, management of mass transfusion. But we use it quite a bit in the ICU as well to kind of quantify our risk versus benefit. So if we are wanting to start VTE prophylaxis and we get a TEG or Rotem that shows that they're not hyper hypocoagulable, that helps to kind of guide our decision making on, you know, starting it earlier versus later. And you also kind of have to think about 
patients who um, may have hyperfibrinolysis that you would see on TAG or Rotem versus fibrinolytic shutdown, so meaning that they're um, not breaking down clot at all, um, that also will kind of help guide that decision-making because up to 64% of patients who come in with a trauma develop fibrinolytic shutdown, so meaning that they're not breaking down clot, putting them at higher risk for VTE for, for, or for VTE and the need, the higher need for VTE prophylaxis kind of early on. So if we get a tag or Rotem and see that, um, that's going to kind of increase that urgency of wanting to, get, wanting to get that prophylaxis on so that we are decreasing their risk for, you know, either a PE or a DVT. And that's one, too, depending on the specific management within the trauma bay, like if they received, you know, PCC or TXA or something and, and their bleeding has subsided, that you, their risk of, you know, VTE events might be even higher. So thinking of not only just the trauma patients themselves, but also the management that's kind of happened can play a little bit of a part there. For sure. Yeah. If I see a patient that's had TXA or, you know, any kind of reversal agent, that's definitely going to up my urgency for wanting to get them on prophylaxis as quickly as possible. So knowing, knowing the risks, um, VTE wise and why we want to get them, you know, we want to get them started as quickly as we can. I think all of us have, have been in the unit or on rounds where, it feels like we're holding VTE prophylaxis in certain patients for what may be routine procedures or, or things like that. Or you're wondering why we're holding anticoagulation for 24 hours. So within, within these patients, what are times that we really want to hold anticoagulation? And then what are times where um, we think the risk of holding the prophylaxis may be outweigh, may outweigh the the risk of um, bleeding in the procedure. Right. I think this is a huge deal, and the data here is just overwhelming to me. Um, there have been studies that have shown that over half of trauma patients actually have interruptions in their VTE prophylaxis, um, and the patients that who miss at least two doses of their prophylaxis have eight times the risk of developing a DVT. Um, and then if you look at the TBI patient population specifically, those that miss doses have an increased risk of 600 times or 600% um, the baseline of, for those that don't miss any prophylaxis. So missing more than one dose is bad, and we want to try and avoid that at all costs. Now, granted, you have to think about, you know, potential surgeries that they may be getting, um, and what the bleeding risk is for those surgeries. So for us, the only times that we hold prophylaxis prior to the OR um, are for three types of surgeries. So the first two being, you know, if you bleed into a small space, the results can be devastating. So for spinal surgeries or intracranial surgeries, we hold just because any bleed in that area is going to be bad. Um, and then the third type of surgery that we hold for are pelvic surgeries. And that's just because the pelvis is highly vascularized. And if you get a bleed there, it's hard to hold compression to get hemorrhage control. Um, so for that reason, we'll hold it for pelvic surgery. So those three are our only ones that we're, you know, absolutely holding prophylaxis. Other than that, they get their prophylaxis, prophylaxis dose 
that morning prior to the OR, even if it's, you know, an hour before the OR. Um, and one of my surgeons always brings this up. When they first started investigating using VTE prophylaxis, it was in, you know, hip and knee surgeries. And the, the protocols were to give the prophylaxis before this, like an hour before the surgery. And now it's funny that ortho is the one that always wants to hold it any time that they're going to the OR. Mm-hmm. But this, this prophylaxis practice came from studying orthopedic surgeries. And in those protocols, they gave the dose of heparin at the time, right before the OR. Um, so it, we really think that the, the risk outweigh the benefit um, for almost all surgeries um, for them to get the prophylaxis. So in in trauma alert part one, we discussed giving antibiotics to patients with open fractures when they are in the trauma bay. And we talked about trying to, you know, give it while they're in the bay specifically because when they leave, sometimes they say they're going to scan and they're coming back, but you just never know. So, okay, we, we talked about giving giving those when they arrive. Now when are these antibiotics continued, if ever, when these patients return to the ICU? That's a great question, and it's going to kind of depend on the patient. For the most part, um, we only give 24 hours of antibiotic coverage. Um, That has been studied, and what they have shown is that longer durations don't decrease your risk of infection any more than... um, that first 24 hours. So what we do at MUSC, um, we use cefazolin for grade one and two fractures. So if you look at open fractures, um, they're graded by um, the amount of tissue damage over the fracture. So grade one and two are just small lacerations over the fracture. Um, So less risk of bugs getting in there and the the types of um, coverage that you want are usually just skin flora. So Cefazolin typically covers that. Now, when you go to a grade three fracture, that usually means you have a little bit more of a mangled extremity, a little more skin exposure, um, more potential for not only skin flora, but also gram-negative bacteria from the environment to get into that um, site. And so for that reason, we increase our coverage to add a little bit more gram-negative coverage. So for grade threes, we will use um, ceftriaxone. What's great about that is it's dosed once a day. We have IV push ceftriaxone in our emergency department, so they can get it relatively quickly, get one dose in the ED, and be done. If they um, are getting ANSEF, we'll do 24 hours, so that's usually Q8 dosing, so they'll get the full 24 hours that will continue you know, once they come to the ICU from the emergency department. The caveat to that is we will continue if they are kind of grossly contaminated um, and unable to go to the OR. So sometimes you get a trauma patient who's a multi-system trauma, unable to go to the OR because they're not hemodynamically stable. So they'll get kind of an informal washout either in the ED or in the ICU, um, but they're not able to go get that completely washed out, reduced, and get good adequate skin coverage over the um, fracture. So for that ca- in that case, we would continue antibiotics, but not any longer than 72 hours. So that's kind of our cutoff. Unless you have, a signs, have signs and symptoms of infection, we cut off at 72 hours um, for prophylaxis. Now, at that point, if you do have signs and symptoms of infection, 
that's not considered prophylaxis anymore, we're actually treating um, an orthopedic injury infection. So 72 hours is kind of the cutoff for us there. And you mentioned transitioning from that, you know, the antibiotics and the open fractures are prophylaxis. And at a certain point, we go into into the treatment phase of things. And trauma patients can just tend to have long ICU and hospital length of stays. You know, depending on their injury, they can have a whole number of surgeries or procedures and complications. And they can they can tend to be in the unit in their hospital for, for a longer time than other patient populations. And most of us are familiar with the longer you're in the ICU, that the higher risk the higher the risk is that you're going to get an infection of some sort. Now, how, Melanie, I'm guessing one of the more challenging things is identifying like new onset sepsis or an infection when just being a trauma patient itself can mimic the, you know, the SERS criteria, those other signs of infection they were routinely monitor. So how, how are you able to kind of differentiate and make sure that you know, not everyone is on antibiotics in your entire unit, but that we're also not leaving infections untreated. Yeah, I think this is one of the tougher things that we have to do in a trauma ICU. Um, I always kind of joke with my team to, you know, always remember antibiotic stewardship. So just because a patient has a fever, um, that doesn't mean that they have a vanc and zosin deficiency. So we need to kind of... (laughs) kind of work through our differential. And to me, uh, you know, an infection is really a diagnosis of an of exclusion unless we have a known um, clear source. So what we'll do is just try to work down a differential, rule out everything else, um, and use the tools in our toolbox to try and figure out infection versus just steers from some other source. So one of the big ones, uh, we spent all this time talking about VTE prophylaxis, and unfortunately, it's not 100% effective. So one of the biggest things we have to rule out are DVT or PE. So looking for things like tachycardia, you can even get a little fever if you have, um, you know, a large clot burden from a DVT. Looking for hypotension, um, desaturation, things like that. So we'll be evaluating with ultrasound, looking at their legs for DVTs, um, getting uh, CTPE scans if we can to rule out PE. That's probably the first thing that we look for um, when we're starting to work down that differential. Next thing to think about is if you have a patient with um, a traumatic brain injury or any other um, kind of neurologic injury is ruling out neurostorming. Um, and then after that, thinking about just an overall total body fever workup. So getting the imaging that we need, so chest x-rays, um, CTs if appropriate, if they had intra-abdominal injuries, getting a CT abdomen pelvis, looking at their vent settings. So do we think they might have a pneumonia? Are their vent settings getting worse? Um, really getting all of the cultures that we need, so sputums or uh, BAL, looking at their urinalysis. And then not forgetting to look for those really weird sources. So I've seen things, you know, a patient comes in with a trauma, has a really bad ear infection that we never would have looked in their ears because they had no trauma up there. But then when we're trying to rule out this fever, doing a full workup, you know, turns out they had a terrible ear infection and they just needed some antibiotics. Um, Thinking about decubitus ulcers, retained foreign objects. that's another weird one that we have found. 
or orthopedic surgery wounds. So if they have multi-system trauma, they've been to the OR with ortho multiple times, unwrapping their dressings and making sure that their wounds don't look infected. Um, and then also using things like procalcitonin to help determine if it's a bacterial infection versus um, just a Sears picture. So it's really, again, just walking down that checklist of fever workup and all the other potential things that it could be and checking all of those off as you go before you um, decide to just initiate broad-spectrum antibiotics without a clear source. If there are any learners listening, students, residents, what have you, that was a, I, I would write some of those things down. M- Melanie just gave you an absolute, <laughs> like a, a top to bottom kind of run through of a, of a fever or infectious workup and kind of things you think of when someone's spiking a fever and that, yeah, as, as you so eloquently put it, it's not always a, a vancosin deficiency, right? Antibiotics <laughs> are not um, antipyretics, something that my uh, preceptors loved reminding me. Um, Very true. <laughs> so, you know, we me- I mentioned that it was, you know, trauma patients themselves that can kind of mimic um, the SERS criteria. And um, neurostorming or paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity or one of probably 10 different nicknames that you might hear it under is one yeah. of those kind of complications that, of course, mimics um, – you know, those SERS criteria and why we're, you know, moving away from that kind of old sepsis definition. So this kind of complication in our TBI patients can be not only difficult to ultimately identify, but also ultimately it can be just difficult to treat itself. But before we kind of get into the management, how do we diagnose, you know, or identify this complication? Yeah, so similar to um, your of fever diagnosis, again, neurostorming tends to be a diagnosis of exclusion. So the things you have to think about is, first of all, there has to be a neurological injury. So 80% of patients who have paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity come from TBI. So it's, you know, pretty prevalent in your patients that have a TBI or a TBI. It's caused by an imbalance of your adrenergic outflow. So you see symptoms that look very similar to your Sears criteria. And what you kind of have to do, similar to the fever workout, is just walk through ruling out things and then deciding, okay, well, it's none of these things, so it's probably neurostorming. The first thing that uh, we like to do, especially in patients with fever, um, is use procalcitonin. They have a whole protocol in our neuro ICU because this affects TBI patients, but it also patients that have stroke or hydrocephalus, things, other neurologic injuries can develop neurostorming. So what they will do is when a patient spikes a fever is check a procalcitonin first. And then if that's elevated, they escalate to the fever workout, work up of getting blood cultures and all of that. So that helps kind of prevent the number of blood cultures that these patients have drawn. Um, other things to think about is Are there potentials for withdrawal um, or agitation? Like I mentioned, our trauma patients um, sometimes have a high incidence of substance abuse. So is this opioid or alcohol withdrawal that you need to be adequately treating? Um, Another thing to think about, especially your patients with TBI, is ruling out seizures. So do they have um, a seizure that's just not being manifested? that you need to look for a spot EEG or a continuous EEG 
um, to rule out that this is actually being caused by seizures. Um, so once you've done all of those things um, and you have seen the nature of the, the injury, so it has to be proxismal, meaning that it's not all the time, but it's kind of waxing and waning. It also has to, they also have to have a, some sort of noxious stimuli. So this can be turning the patient in bed. It could be, you know, getting blood cultures or getting labs or suctioning um, their ET tube, anything like that that could be noxious. Um, can trigger a storming event. So there has to be some sort of um, action that has caused that, and then it has to kind of wax and wane. So if you can check all of those boxes then you can, and you've ruled out everything else, then you can pretty confidently say that it is neurostorming. So once we have kind of done that process and identified that this is likely neurostorming. What are what are kind of our our pillars of management, or you know, kind of our our mainstay, uh, the kind of the um, you know top two or three maybe drugs or drug classes that these patients use to help to help control um, their storming episodes. Yeah, so you can kind of break down therapy for neurostorming into two subcategories. Your first is going to be your abortive therapy. So this is what you use in an acute storming event to manage those symptoms quickly. Um, and then the other category is going to be preventative therapy. So these are going to be agents that we start initiating on these patients to hopefully decrease the number, um, the duration, and the um, size or uh, amount of storming that they have. So the first category, the abortive therapy, your go-to agent is actually um, opioids. So as much as I have, you know, harped on not using opioids in these patients, um, in neurostorming, opioids work really well. Um, morphine is your actual go-to opioid. It's been the most studied. And because of some differences in kinetics with morphine, it, it is known to work the best. So what it does is it acts both centrally and peripherally. So it suppresses that sympathetic outflow um, that you have from the neurostorming. Um, it increases cholinergic activity because of its histamine release specific to morphine. And then it causes um, peripheral vasoconstriction. So that helps kind of decrease the outflow as well as treat the symptoms that you're having from neurostorming. Um, it is dose dependent, so you need to use pretty decent sized doses. The usual starting dose that we will do is eight milligrams, um, and then kind of go up from there if they continue to be refractory. Then after opioids, the next go-to are benzodiazepines, and that's really if they're kind of refractory, we will try those um, to mask or decrease the symptoms um, from the storming. Then once you get into the preventative therapy, um, we use a lot of different agents. One of the biggest ones are um, non-selective beta blockers. So propranolol is our go-to. We'll talk a lot about beta blockers in just a little bit um, about their benefits. But propranolol is awesome because it's highly lipophilic, so it crosses your blood-brain barrier really quickly. Um, it's able to act to decrease those signs and symptoms of storming, decrease the tachycardia, decrease the hypertension. Um, and really 
help prevent the duration and the number of neurostorming events that the patients have. Um, other ones that we use, other agents like your benzodiazepines that work on GABA. So gabapentin um, is a go-to maintenance med for us. And then clonidine. So clonidine is an alpha-2 agonist. Um, will help decrease your norepinephrine release in the brain. So that decreasing of that sympathetic outflow, again, is kind of a long-term management to help decrease your number and duration of your storming episodes. And then after that, it really kind of gets into what symptoms the patients have. So, you know, one of the other symptoms that you can have is a lot of spasticity or posturing. So if you have patients that are experiencing that as part of their neurostorming event, um, baclofen is a great drug, um, a muscle relaxer that helps kind of decrease that spasticity that they have. So that's kind of another go-to for the preventative therapy. So, like you said, we'll we'll talk about beta blockers in just one second. I, I want to ask a clarification question. So, for the patients who are say they're on a fentanyl drip, a, a fentanyl IV infusion, do you is it one where if you think they're neurostorming, will you try to change their PRN agent, like you said, to IV morphine, or will you allow it to just to just use IV fentanyl maybe at a dose conversion and see if that helps and then switch? Or what's your general practice of, like, are you combining opioids? Are you trying to stick with one? Or what do you do in those scenarios? So in that case, I would probably leave the fentanyl drip where it was at and then add on a PRM morphine. Um, and what I would do, you know, because we also have patients that are on oxycodone. And once, mm-hmm. once the storming is under control, any opioid will really work. Um, but morphine, because of that excess histamine release that you have, is ideal for storming episodes. So I would leave, you know, if I had a patient on either a fentanyl drip or scheduled oxycodone, I would leave those alone and then add into their PRN medications morphine with a specific PRN administration instruction of you know, to be given for acute neurostorming events. Okay, and I that's like something that. I. That's something I've had to do, you know, pretty frequently when mm-hmm. we have a really refractory um, storming patient. I think that's a great tip because that's kind of, um, you know, being practical, switching everybody when you think they may be storming to all morphine infusions in the area of drugs shortages and COVID would, I think both both the unit and the main pharmacy might get upset with you. That'd be the <laughs> one time where it's a twofer there. <laughs> yep, for sure. Um so when discussing trauma, uh, you know, there are just generally clinical pearls related specifically to traumatic brain injuries or TBI. So almost like we're a boxer where we're training and we're, and we're hitting the bag and we're going pretty quick. We won't go that quickly, but we're going to hit a few of these topics kind of in succession, really focusing on, on patients with TBI. Um, so the first one, Pharmacists, just generally speaking, we're routinely on the front lines of the battle against giving everyone albumin. Um, I think I think that is hospital wide. It doesn't matter if you're in critical care or not. Um, so what's an appropriate response when somebody wants to order colloid, say albumin, for example, for a TBI patient? Um, well, that's going to be a no for me. <laughs> that's always my response to albumin in a TBI patient. And that comes from the SAFE study, uh, which was a study 
probably almost 20 years ago now, um, looking at resuscitation in all patients, all critically ill patients, using albumin versus crystalloid resuscitation. And what they found in one of their subgroups um, was that trauma patients actually did worse with more albumin. But then when they looked specifically at TBI, they found a much higher mortality, almost double mortality um, for TBI patients who received albumin as compared to crystalloids. The reason for that is albumin is actually a little bit hypotonic. So we don't want to be giving TBI patients a hypotonic solution in general because of the risk for increased um, intracranial pressure. So that's the theory behind why it's a no, but it's definitely a no because of that study. It's actually probably the one albumin battle that you have a really good chance of winning. Because generally when yes. you let people know that, they generally back off. Now, when you're yeah. trying to get your cardiac surgeon to not give albumin to his post-op patient, I, I'll just say good luck to you there. Yeah. Um, Thankfully, so, I don't have to deal with those things very often. Now, do in TBI patients, do we have an evidence-based seizure prophylaxis regimen? Or generally speaking, do we agree on the duration and all the other components like agent, dose, they may differ depending on your practice site. Where are we in terms of TBI patients? So TBI um, is a little bit like your Lovenox versus heparin um, when you're talking about specific agents. I think everyone across the board can agree that a seven-day duration is the appropriate duration for seizure prophylaxis in TBI patients. And that comes from the landmark New England Journal study um, that was by Timken et al., um, way back in 1990. So we're looking at 30-year-old literature now. Um, that study used phenytoin, um, and they compared the rates of both early and late seizure or late seizures with prophylaxis um, from phenytoin versus placebo. And what they found was that within seven days, it did, phenytoin dramatically decreased the patient's risk for seizure with TBI. But the long term, they studied it out to a year the long-term seizures weren't any different, so that's why we stop it at seven days. Um, but now the kind of controversy is, is phenytoin the only drug that we can use? Um, so Keppra or levetiracetam is another agent that can be used for prophylaxis and is commonly used in the neurosurgical world for prophylaxis, you know, for surgery, um, tumors, things like that. So the, the trauma world, a lot of people have kind of adopted the use of Keppra um, based on that other neuro neurosurgery data, um, but there haven't been any great head-to-head um, -head trials looking at Keppra versus Phenytoin. There has been some kind of observational data um, that have shown that the two are equivalent. There was one meta-analysis that looked at seven trials, and it found no difference in rate of seizures between those two. Um, but again, no real head-to-head -head data, but it's pretty widely accepted in the trauma world that you can use either. For me, I used to kind of be a very a purist in that, you know, we studied phenytoin, this is what we should use, um, and would always recommend phenytoin. And then all of a sudden we got push-dose Keppra at our institution, um, and that just made things so much easier from a getting that first dose in the patient in a timely manner kind of perspective. Because when you're down in the ED, we don't have phenytoin. We have phosphenytoin, which you can make up in a big bag and it takes a while. <laughs> or you can go grab two or three vials out of Keppra, put them in a <laughs> syringe and push them into the patient. 
Um, so <laughs> I think that just goes to show that you can have all of the evidence-based medicine you want, but if it's a lot easier to get one drug in to the patient than another drug, that's probably the route that medicine is going to go. Um, so for me, we use Kepra now um, because it's just a lot easier, a lot less monitoring. Um, so that's kind of my personal preference. You know, you've highlighted two advancements in the delivery of medicines, push antibiotics and, and push uh, Keppra or anti-epileptics. I'm such a big fan of both of them. They're, yeah, I I completely agree. The IV push is, is the, that's the sell-all for me. We're saving pumps. It's a little easier to give. We can, ordering the medicines, I, I always have to tell this when I, when I have students or residents, especially if they're down in the ERs, like, you know, one of the differences ordering them is only half the battle. Because if you ordered them and they didn't get it, then what did we Doesn't do? <laughs> exactly. Right. You could be the smartest person in the room, but if you can't figure out how to get the drug into the patient, you're of no use to anyone. <laughs> yes. Um, now, in, in our TBI patients, what are, generally speaking, our blood pressure targets for, for this group? Um, so for blood pressure, we usually go by the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines. Um, those recommend a systolic pressure greater than 100 um, for patients that are older than 50 or uh, greater than 110 for patients that are less than 50. Um, but for me, when you're talking about systolic blood pressures, you have to kind of consider ICP in that equation as well. So we generally like to use um, a CPP or cerebral perfusion pressure um, rather than a specific SBP if we are, you know, talking about patients that we're managing their intracranial pressure. And so CPP, all that is equal to your MAP or your mean arterial pressure minus your ICP. And what you're doing by measuring that is you're ensuring that you have good perfusion. So if you're having ICP spikes, you want to see your CPP rising as well. So a normal goal for CPP is 60 to 70. So if you have a, a patient who has, let's say, an ICP of around 20, then that means you need a MAP of around 80 to ensure that you're getting good perfusion to the brain. So for me, that's a more accurate um, and useful number to use rather than just a specific um, SVP goal. Uh, you also have to think about if they're in kind of the acute phase or a little bit later on in their ICU stay. So if you, you know, have a patient who's brand new with a TBI and has um, a hematoma, if you're acutely hypertensive early on, that can be bad because that can cause hematoma expansion. So we'll be a lot more aggressive about managing hypertension early on than we would be later on when we would really want to let them have a little bit of permissive hypertension so that they are getting good perfusion. So a lot of kind of patient-specific things really matter in these situations. Hey, that's when you can have a little bit of fun with hemodynamics. Start talking about CPP yeah. and MAP and comparing MAP and systolics. No, that's, that, that's, that's patient-specific, but Melanie, you know that's when it gets fun. Sure. Um, so, the a very common thing for TBI patients to receive, and we talked about it before, is beta blockers. So, mm -hmm. specifically, why do most patients why do most patients receive them? And 
you, know, you hinted at this, but maybe you can highlight why we want to try to give a specific beta blocker in the when we're using it in these scenarios. Right. So, you know, I mentioned propranolol before because of the storming event. Um, but on top of using propranolol for storming, um, it has been recently kind of come to light that using beta blockers in general for patients with a TBI has been linked to decreasing their mortality from TBI. Um, the kind of pathophysiology and thinking about that is that it has been shown that there is kind of a bell-shaped curve for, for TBI survival that's directly related to their hemodynamics. And what that is is just a product of their cardiac workload. So if you have a cardiac workload that's too low or too high, you um, have an increased risk for mortality if you have a TBI. So kind of layman's term for that is if you are either hypotensive um, or hypertensive or either too tacky or too bradycardic early on um, with a TBI, that's directly related to you having a decreased rate of survival. So there have been a lot of studies in probably the past five years looking at the correlation between beta blockers and TBI survival. Um, and some of those kind of highlighted that all beta blockers are good, but propranolol is better. So we will, um, as an institution, put propranolol on every patient that is hemodynamically stable um, with a TBI. So as soon as they're stable, not on pressors, not needing to resuscitate them in, uh, anymore, they go on propranolol. Kind of the first big trial that showed that benefit, there's, there were several smaller ones, but then in 2019, um, the American Association for um, Surgeon, Surgery of Trauma did a prospective observational trial. And this was a big registry trial. It had over 2,000 patients. And again, they showed that, that having a beta blocker on board lowered their mortality but specifically having propranolol um, lower, decreased their mortality by about half. So their odds ratio was 0.51, a statistically significant mortality decrease. So anytime in critically ill patients you can find a drug that helps lower your risk of death, um, people are going to get excited about that. And mm -hmm. I would definitely say this is one of the few drugs that I get really excited about starting in PBI patients. Um, and then just last year, there was a prospective randomized control trial um, looking at adding propranolol versus placebo for 10 days in patients that had a severe TBI, and they found a huge drop in mortality. So 18.6% mortality for the placebo group versus 4.4% mortality in the propranolol group. Um, so because of that, we've adopted this kind of protocol to put propranolol on everyone as long as they're hemodynamically stable and leave it on for at least 10 days. Um, and we think that that's kind of the best thing to do for patients to potentially have that mortality benefit. Yeah, when you can find mortality benefit in critically ill patients, you know, it's pretty rare, especially something medication-wise to do it. Yeah, we're, we're going to jump all over that. Yeah, I feel like that's a very tough thing to do in clinical trials. Um, you know, there's so many drugs that we look at that we hope will have a mortality benefit and don't really pan out. So seeing this for propranolol really um, makes me a believer for sure. Now, kind of the the last kind of segment in the in the the 
quick hitters here is, you know, what's the role for neurostimulants? Um, and then kind of like the, the quick follow-up to that would be, you know, the role of neurostimulants in TBI patients. And then are there times that you try to avoid using these neurostimulants? Maybe it's specific complications or there are patient-specific factors that may be happening. Yeah, so neurostimulants and TBI have been widely studied. I will say the caveat to that is they're not widely studied in the ICU. So the two big ones that are used are amantadine or uh, methylphenidate. Amantadine is probably the most common one, um, and that, again, came from another New England Journal study where they looked at using amantadine, um, and they started this when the patient was actually in rehab. So they gave 100 milligrams of amantadine twice a day um, to patients for four weeks. And what they wanted to see is whether their uh, disability rating scale, so this is a scale to assess kind of their um, their level of alertness or comatoseness and their ability to kind of recover neurologic function. And they did that for, so they looked at them for four weeks. What they found was that the amantadine did actually help improve that uh, that DRS um, in the four weeks that they were on the treatment, but you didn't continue to see that improvement after you stopped the amantadine. But like I mentioned, this was done in rehab. So it was stable patients well after their ICU course. So I don't really know the applicability to ICU level patients. And for that reason, we don't do it a ton in the ICU. There is occasionally the time when we have a TBI patient who um, just isn't getting to the floor for one reason or another. They're, you know, not waking up and that's kind of what's holding them into the ICU is their lack of cognition. So we might try it in that patient. Um, just, you know, that patient is just not waking up even though you don't have a great explanation for why. Um, so that's kind of the only patient that we will use amantadine in. And we don't really use methylphenidate just because of the the adverse effects profile with hypertension and things like that. But um, amantadine would be our go-to if we're going to use it in ICU. As far as who we wouldn't use it in uh, would be patients that are being treated for storming. So one of the big side effects of amantadine and methylphenidate would be agitation. So it doesn't make sense to start, you know, amantadine on somebody who you're still treating for acute um, neuroxy neurostorming episodes. So I feel like this episode, I've, I've highlighted a few things that can be um, areas of unity for pharmacists. And I can't think of any one area that unites trauma or surgery pharmacists, like the discussion of bowel regimens. Um, <laughs> so... What is your general protocol? Because and I'm asking this is because if anyone listening is curious, um, I've, d I, I've done the looking. There's not tons of evidence-based bowel regimens here per se. There, there, there's a couple here and there. So I'm curious what your, what your protocol is to ultimately avoid constipation, but make sure that it doesn't turn into a, a Relistore ICU as well. <laughs> First of all, I have to say, I never thought when I was becoming a pharmacist that I would spend my entire, you know, work life talking about bowel movements every day. 
<laughs> keeping track of when a patient's last bowel movement was. But and, that and is how, something and what was I it? literally like, no, do that every wasn't day. A real one. That wasn't real. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, this is a big part of my day. I will agree with you. I've actually tried to dig into literature to find out if there was uh-huh. any kind of evidence base, and I have never found anything that, that says that one thing is better than a, the other. But we'll say some of my surgeons have a bias against Docusate. They think it's just placebo, um, but it's cheap, and it doesn't really hurt anything, so I usually like to include it um, uh-huh. as a stool softener. My kind of go-to for that is, you know, unless the patient has a bowel injury or, you know, has just had a small bowel resection that we're trying to be careful of the anastomosis, every patient should be on a bowel regimen. So my kind of go-to day one, everyone gets docusatins in a scheduled, not PRN, because no nurse wants to give PRN bowel regimens because no nurse wants to clean that up. <laughs> so for that reason, they should get it scheduled. Um, and then if we are, you know, day two or three, haven't had a bowel movement, we start adding other agents like polyethylene glycol and Miralax um, and making sure that the patient's hydrated, has appropriate um, fiber intake, that kind of thing, um, and then escalating from there. So if, you know, day three or four, none of that stuff stuff is working, then they're getting a suppository, um, and that usually does the trick. Now, there are special patient populations where you have to think about being really aggressive with bowel regimens, spinal cord injuries, patients that have para or quadriplegia, um, they have a very aggressive bowel regimen set um, that includes a daily suppository, digital stimulation, the things that they need to keep their bowels moving because of the um, lack of sympathetic outflow that they may have due to their injury. Yeah, it is a, I, I also did not think that that would be such a, um, a, a topic that you're talking about on a lot of patients. Cause when you, when you have these complicated trauma patients, you know, the, the bowel regimens and GI section can kind of be overlooked when we're spending 20 minutes talking about, you know, neuro or, um, you know, they're trying to get their surgery plan or things. So it's, but I, I, I think constipation can cause, um, a, agitation, I think it can contribute to delirium and all those things. So I think it's something that can't go under the radar in these patients. It can even increase your ICP. So <laughs> again, TBI patients, important <laughs> to make sure that their bowels are moving. Oh, <laughs> uh, I wish, I wish, I mean, we, I, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here that we didn't even get to, to, to cover all the things we wanted to talk about, but I'm looking and we're, and we're 86 minutes in and Melanie, people told me that I, I can be a little long winded on these episodes. So, you know, one thing for the listeners that we were going to try to talk about is highlight kind of, um, what you do with some of the specific comorbidities. So what I'll kind of work with Melanie on is we will, uh, we'll create maybe a little bit of a chart or maybe a little, a little talking segment or something that we'll put out on our, on the social media channels. So, so stay tuned to that later this week. We'll, we'll put that out. That'll kind of be a, a bonus so that people can still get the information, but that we're not, we're not pushing two hours on this, uh, on this episode here. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Sorry. I could talk about this stuff forever. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? You didn't. Stuff your sorries in a sack. There's no need to apologize to me. I'm, I'm completely the same way. So if the listeners could only remember two or three things from, from all of this 
awesome information you've shared as it kind of relates to our our trauma patients in the ICU. What are some of those some of those main points you hope they remember? I think the biggest thing is the importance of VTE prophylaxis, especially in this patient population. Um, and then, you know, really using personalized medicine. So we kind of touch base on a lot of different topics. But if you think about individualizing your care to your patient, you know, for pain, agitation, delirium, ruling out things that it could or couldn't be, for trying to decide on infection versus Sears criteria, trying to decide if it's neurostorming, really think about the specific patient and um, using your knowledge of what the ways to work through um, all of those things like we talked about. Probably the biggest thing you can do for trauma patients in general. And then really one of my big things for all critically ill patients is a lot of times less is more. So you don't need a drug for everything as much as, you know, we like to give drugs as pharmacists, but really using patient-specific things and trying to cut down on the amount of things that we're doing sometimes tends to be the, the best care for our critically ill trauma patients. Those are all wise, wise words. Um, and I, I always like to close out. We'll, I, I like to have some fun questions here. So we'll, we'll end with one. So if you, ha- if you okay. had to pick here out of these three buckets, coffee, espresso, or tea, what's, what's the bucket that you're choosing? Espresso all the way. Oh. Or if I could put espresso in my coffee, I would do that too. <laughs> oh, you have so you have you have some red eyes for those that don't. I love know. red eyes. Yes, yeah. that is that's the residency <laughs> special of where I learned that. And the a red eye is where you have a fresh brewed cup of coffee and they toss a shot of espresso in. For those wondering, and if you oh go if ahead, you do a black eye that's <laughs> coffee with two shots of espresso. I learned that from Kyle Wink, my uh, ED pharmacy preceptor. <laughs> Oh yes, uh, that is. Yep. Okay. Done. That's the, the the only wrong answer is tea. There, for the record, coffee or espresso are both are both correct answers. Uh, and and uh, for for all the listeners, if you're wondering, um, Melanie is on Twitter. If you're looking to kind of get in touch with her, her handle is at Tribby. Dibidi. So let me spell that. It'll be on some of our promo posts. If you're wondering the history of that, that's on she, Melanie went into the detail of that on our on her March Madness episode. So we're we won't do any spoilers there, but we kind of go into detail there. But that that is T R I B I D I B I D Y. Gosh, I have it written down and it was hard to read. <laughs> well, thanks for yeah, joining me. I have me to write today. it out. I can't spell it out based on memory. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining me today, Melanie. Always a, a really great, t- great, great time talking with you, um, and especially when we're when we're diving into all the fun trauma things that you're certainly an expert in. Yeah, thank you again for having me. This is so much fun. Like I said, I could talk about this forever. So I really appreciate getting to share some of my pearls with you guys. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Melanie. Now. We're planning out the next few episodes here, and there are some awesome guests joining me. So definitely uh, be sure to stay tuned because these upcoming episodes, they're going to be really good. Uh, always open to feedback, positive and negative, as well as if you have any uh, guests or topic ideas, uh, Twitter at Pharmacy to Dose, that's T-O to Dose, uh, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. As always, show notes are featured in the podcast episode description, as well as pharmacy our website. So until next time, I'm Nick Peters. And this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.